I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to look at the latest nasty turn in Russia's war in Ukraine. Multiple blasts rock central Kyiv during morning rush hour. Civilian targets were struck in the barrage of strikes. The first to hit the capital in months. Over this past week, Russian airstrikes hit multiple Ukrainian cities, including, as we just heard, the capital, Kiev. The strikes followed a blast that destroyed part of the Kerch Bridge, which connects Crimea, which Russia annexed from Ukraine in 2014, to Russia itself. It's a bridge that Russian President Vladimir Putin had portrayed as a showcase of Russian success. Putin claimed that Russia's airstrikes this past week were a response to the Kerch Bridge blast and that they targeted Ukrainian military, energy and communications infrastructure. In reality, the strikes appeared pre-planned and destroyed much of the power grid, but also killed and injured civilians, destroyed apartment buildings and parts of city centers. This is Ukrainian President Zelensky talking about it. And now the occupiers cannot oppose us on the battlefield. That is why they resort to this terror. Well, let's make the battlefield even more painful for the enemy, and we will restore everything that was destroyed. This latest escalation follows a bad few weeks for Russian forces on the battlefield. In early September, the Ukrainian army routed Russians from the northeastern region of Kharkiv and made some gains in the south. In response, Putin announced he would mobilize 300,000 new Russian forces. He held what he called referenda in Russian-held areas of Ukraine and then declared those regions part of Russia. He also made his most explicit nuclear threats yet. Our country, too, has different weapons of destruction. In some cases, they are more modern than those of NATO. If the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, then to defend Russia and our people, we shall, of course, use all means at our disposal. I am not bluffing. So what does all this mean for the war? What should we make of Putin's nuclear threat and the fact that he appears to be escalating in response to every setback? 
is he himself closing down options to step back? Is a clash, a potentially catastrophic nuclear confrontation between Russia and Ukraine's Western backers, the US, NATO, looking ever likelier the longer this goes on? So to talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back on Olya Olika, who listeners will know is Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia Director. Olya, welcome back on. Glad to be back. So, Olya, let's start then with what's happening in Ukraine and this latest escalation. I mean, do you want to give us a short summary of where things stand? Starting on Monday, we had this Russian blitz of Ukraine with uh, missile attacks that began early on uh, Monday morning and... They kind of went on for several hours on Monday, and then we've had more scattered attacks uh, since then. When Putin spoke about this, he did present it as a response to the destruction of part of the Kerch Bridge, the bridge that Russia built to connect annexed Crimea to internationally recognized Russia. But, you know, an attack of this scale is something that Russia had been planning for for a while, right? You don't, uh, you don't carry something this coordinated out with just a few days of planning. So this is a plan that they were implementing. Meanwhile, in the various directions, uh, in the east and south, where Ukrainian and Russian forces continue to fight, we haven't seen that much movement, uh, over the last, uh, week or so. You know, territory changes hands a little bit, uh, and then, but not real movement for either Russia or Ukraine in any direction, uh, either in Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, or down in the south in Kherson, uh, continuing, uh, some insurgent activity in Kherson, leafleting, things like that, but, uh, no massive, uh, or even substantial military movements. So no massive gains on either side. But I guess, I mean, there is this narrative based, of course, on on these big Ukrainian advances in Kharkiv over recent weeks and lots of reports that the Ukrainians were moving forward in Luhansk, in the Donbass. Um, So for now, the advance has sort of stopped. Oh, that's what it looks like. I mean, I think from the Ukrainian perspective, they need to be careful not to put themselves in the same position that the Russians were in particularly in the north, where the Russians had taken territory but had not reinforced it, were not adequately defending it. Uh, they, of course, made that worse by moving troops out. But the Ukrainians do need to make sure that they can hold the territory that they have regained. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, that you've seen things slow down a bit. Another reason is that they're reaching territory where the Russians are better reinforced and better defended. What do you rate the Ukrainian prospects of um, taking back enough territory in the south that they sort of cut off this land bridge from Crimea? We'll talk about the other bridge in a moment, but the land bridge from Crimea to Donbass. They need to undertake a pretty massive additional offensive and be super successful. We never had the kind of movement in the south that we had in Kharkiv by the Ukrainians. So they have had some real successes there because the Russians are better defended there. They've been holding that territory for a long time, but they also have a lot of people in place. You know, th- this is a real fight. Um, so look, I'm, I am not big on probabilities for this war, which is determined to surprise us, uh, whatever we expect, but it's certainly not impossible for the Ukrainians to take more territory, but it's not going to be easy to do. And to actually break the land bridge, um, that would be substantial. And the strike on the Kerch Bridge, you think that's mostly a sort of psychological blow to President Putin in particular, who had a lot personally vested in the bridge to the Kremlin? 
or you know has that served a, because it hasn't actually cut off supplies from Russia to Crimea right so, I mean how, how much militarily does that strike gain Ukraine so if that strike had, as first appeared, really taken out uh, the rail portion of the bridge and had, had it really um, been able to constrain Russia's capacity to move things on rail across the bridge, it would have had a substantial impact, not uh, decisive, right? There are all sorts of other ways, including overland that Russia has of moving stuff and, of course, over water. But, uh, you know, the Russians have been using this bridge as a major uh, supply route. Uh, what it has done, what the uh, what the explosions have done, is a lot of damage to the road, but uh, not all of it. So they were able to restart uh, traffic pretty quickly, which means that the victory is, as you say, uh, somewhat psychological. That yes, damage can be done to this bridge. Yes, it is vulnerable. If you can do it once, you can possibly do it again. Uh, right. The Russians had made a point of saying that they had um, solid, reliable security on the bridge and uh, evidently not. So I think that also uh, is something of a psychological victory. Certainly, there were a lot of memes going around in Ukraine about the bridge and the visual of having, you know, just this chunk of road going into the water is a very evocative one. And uh, the blast itself, I mean, reportedly a truck bomb or car bomb. I mean, do we actually know? There was a lot of speculation from the start. Uh, lots of people just looking at the videos over and over again, speculating on, you know, is this really a car bomb? Uh, could it have been a missile strike? What was it? What wasn't it? I have not parsed this stuff to really try to figure out what it was. Um, uh, the FSB is now saying things like that it contained, uh, that it was a truck bomb that contained 22 tons of uh, explosives which analysts say does not sound right. But the Russians uh, have also said that they've identified uh, the people responsible. The Ukrainians have uh, have questioned this. There's going to be a lot of going back and forth, uh, a lot of argument, and uh, still a lot of speculation for some time. And so, Olya, you were in Ukraine recently, right? Before the latest escalation, but after the Kharkiv offensive. We were there um, just as Moscow announced that it was going to uh, be holding these quote-unquote referenda, which, uh, you know, these uh, votes at gunpoint uh, in territory that it controlled on uh, joining Russia. Um, so that that's so uh, we were in Kiev and we were in Dnipro as uh, armed men were going door-to-door to force people to vote in, uh, in Zaporizhia and uh, Donetsk, Luhansk and Kherson. I mean, just so listeners understand, I mean, how does one get into Ukraine and into Kiev and then get down to Dnipro nowadays? So both I and our senior Ukraine analyst, Simon Schlegel, who is now based in Ukraine, but at this time we were both coming from Warsaw, but because we went on different dates and we just had different arrangements, Simon took the train uh, from Warsaw to Kiev. Uh, it involved some ch- uh, changes of train. And I hitched a ride with friends of friends. So I got a ride from Warsaw to Lviv and then um, drove uh, from Lviv to Kiev. Um, and then from Kiev to Dnipro, we basically rented a car with uh, some Ukrainian colleagues. But the roads were in good shape. In the West Ukraine, there are some remains of checkpoints that apparently had been set up. In the early days of the war, when there was concern that Russian forces might make it that far, but when they did not, uh, the positions were, the checkpoints were, of course, abandoned. 
when you get closer to Kiev, you do get more checkpoints, and between Kiev and Dnipro, you get a few, but they're, you know, they're professionally run and organized, and certainly crossing the border is a very organized, functional process. Dnipro is the capital of the Dnipropetrovsk region, which hasn't been held by Russians this year, right? But it is south of Kharkiv, and it's surrounded by areas that Russia has controlled. Dnipropetrovsk is the region. And Dnipropetrovsk region is um, surrounded by regions where there has been fierce fighting uh, through this war. And right now it borders on, on three regions where there continues to be fighting. So it's got Poltava and Kharkiv on the north. And of course, Kharkiv was where this major Ukrainian counteroffensive was. The Nyetsk uh, to the east, so of course the Nyetsk Oblast, and then the Zaporizhia and Kherson on the south, which again, these are regions that uh, Russia was holding its uh, so-called referenda in, and then Mikolaev and Kirovograd on the west. So a lot of fighting very close to Dnipropetrovsk, which has made it the um, a bit of a hub for IDPs who are internally displaced, but actually planning to leave Ukraine, you know, because they have to go somewhere else. You have to get through uh, parts of Ukraine first. And for some military operations as well, it means that that's where a lot of the civil society volunteers who are organizing relief efforts are based out of. It's also a city that has experienced a number of missile strikes of its own, including in the last few days. When we were there, there were pretty consistent air raid sirens a few times a day and at night, which was uh, a lot more than Kiev, uh, where the air raid sirens happened, but not anywhere near as regularly. And I mean, I appreciate it's difficult to, to sort of generalize, but the mood among people you talk to? So we talked to a pretty broad range of Ukrainians. Uh, we talked to government officials. We talked to members of parliament. We talked to the civil society volunteers who were helping IDPs. We talked to displaced people. We talked to folks living in the Kiev suburbs whose homes had been destroyed, uh, and in some cases who were still living in those homes uh, which had been destroyed. We talked to medical workers. So you had a pretty good cross-section of uh of Ukrainian society uh, uh, in both Kiev and Dnipro, and honestly heard a really diverse set of opinions on the country's future, heard a lot of debate on what the best way of managing and reintegrating newly liberated territory was, heard a lot of complaints about uh, the Zelensky government and how it governed before the war. But we also heard a clear sense of unity and a clear kind of all hands on deck. We're going to sort the rest of this out once we've won. And of course, at the time, Ukraine had just had the successful counteroffensive. There was, I think, um, a real notion that, uh, you know, victory, according to public opinion polls in Ukraine, Ukrainians have pretty much thought that victory was possible all along, but a real sense that perhaps it would be soon. I think that's a little bit uh, overly optimistic. This war is far from over, as the missile strikes have shown. But what we were hearing from Ukrainians was, we are going to win this, and we have no choice but to win this. The other thing that was already in the air at that time, uh, thanks to Vladimir Putin's speech about the annexations, which also took place while, while we were there, was um, the, this risk of nuclear threats. And, you know, one of the things that a former Ukrainian official 
uh, said, knowingly paraphrasing a statement some years ago by Vladimir Putin, what this former official said was, what good to us is a world without Ukraine? And the Putin statement had been, what good to us is a world without Russia? And it was made in reference to Russia launching nuclear weapons if it was attacked with nuclear weapons. So for the Ukrainian official, the logic of that is, we are already fighting an existential war. If we lose this war, if we surrender, we lose everything. There is no Ukraine. So nuclear threats don't work. You know, you, you know, your, your nuclear threats threaten perhaps other countries, but Ukraine is already at existential risk. So what difference does it make? And we'll talk in a moment about those nuclear threats. I mean, Olya, when Ukrainians say, and I realize this may not always be clearly articulated, but when Ukrainians say we can't lose, we're going to win, they mean capturing back all the Russian held areas in the east and the south, but also Crimea. So according to public opinion polls, yes, a wide variety of Ukrainians does not uh, want to give up any territory that Ukraine that is legally Ukraine's territory. So that would include Crimea, as well as uh, the parts of eastern Ukraine that had been controlled by Russia's proxies uh, since 2014, 2015. You know, just what this means and how this works, hard to know. You know, the Crimea, where the population is, in fact, broadly supportive of Russia, I mean, how do you retake that? It's also where the Black Sea Fleet continues to be based. So it's a heavily armed peninsula where the population is fairly supportive of Russia. So, you know, what's what's the vision for that unless the Russians voluntarily withdraw. I don't know. It's possible the Ukrainians have clear plans for this, but I don't know what they are. But I think the idea the idea for both sides, I think, is that the other will eventually give up, that the time is on their side, that the other side is going to run out of personnel, money, maybe even weapons, and will be forced to surrender. I think that's the vision. But, you know, looking at how this war is going, we are nowhere near there yet. And so let's talk then a little bit about how this looks from Moscow. We could start with the Kerch Bridge. I mean, coming on top of the Ukrainian gains in Kharkiv, the sense that Ukraine has the momentum forcing these moves by by Putin, the annexation, mobilization, which we'll talk about in a moment. But then you got the attack then on the bridge. I mean, how embarrassing is this for the Kremlin? Well, I think the news that is getting to Russians is simultaneously that, you know, horrible vandals uh, damaged the bridge, but also that they didn't do that much damage. And the bridge is operational. And, you know, it's hard to read what's going on in Russia. You can talk to people in Russia, uh, but it's impossible to tell how representative any one person or two people or 10 people's voices are. The louder voices are the ones that are pro-government and, uh, you know, they're on social media screaming for the blood of Ukrainians. Do most Russians feel this way? Um, I'm going to say I doubt it, uh, but the public opinion polling does suggest continuing support for the war. But again, you're, you're talking about public opinion polling in a country that has become substantially more autocratic just in the last seven and a half months. You can go to prison for social media posts uh, in opposition to the war. So how honest are people going to be with pollsters? It's really, really difficult to tell. And if we think about um, how people 
you know, who talk to, the, to government officials who are in the government potentially or have been in the government, how they think about this. It actually seems like they're trying to figure out what their country's strategy and options are too, right? They're trying to explain the, the nuclear rhetoric and the saber rattling, but it's not entirely clear that, you know, that they have, um, they have a grasp on the logic fully and completely. So the mobilization, I mean, as we talked about, Kremlin announced this mobilization, 300,000 Russians, supposedly people, reservists who had some training, although it seems to be casting a much wider net than that. Presumably that mobilization itself, that must be changing perceptions of the, of, of the war effort, right? Lots of Russians leaving the country. I mean, it's hard to see that that's not somehow changing perceptions. Look, so hundreds of thousands of Russians, mostly men, have fled Russia so as not to be mobilized. Some of them had already gotten mobilization notices. Some of them just knew that they were subject to mobilization. And they are scattered across Mongolia, Kazakhstan, Georgia, Armenia, European countries, wherever they could get to, Kyrgyzstan. So you have a lot of Russians that whatever they thought of the war, they don't want to fight in it. Now, some of them may have supported the war and realized they didn't once they thought that they might have to fight. Some of them never supported the war, but, you know, what were they going to do about it? So they were going to lay low and wait for it to end. Some of them probably still support the war, but want other people to fight in it, right? There's probably all kind of, you know, kind of just from the interviews we've seen with some of these folks, there's all sorts of logic. What unites all these people is that they don't want to die in this war. Some people have shown up for mobilization and been mobilized. And again, we're hearing lots of very varied accounts on how much training people get. We do hear reports of people being sent to Ukraine without adequate preparation, uh, certainly without adequate equipment. It's really hard to tell just how many people have been mobilized. Has it made Russians as a whole less enthusiastic about the war? Again, I'm not sure because I can't tell you how enthusiastic Russians really were about the war. And Olya, just as an aside, a lot of these Russians that are fleeing the country a lot of them are trying to get to Europe, and Europe itself is sort of divided on what to do with them. So Europe has been making it harder for Russians of all sorts, including Russians who actually have visas to come to Europe. And then it's faced with this problem, what do you do when you've got scores of Russian men and some women, some with their families, on the borders trying to get in? And particularly the border countries, uh, especially the Baltic countries, They've been the ones at the forefront of visa ban arguments that they shouldn't be letting Russians in, that it violates sanctions to let Russians in, and suddenly here are all these Russians. There are a couple of very good reasons to let them in. One is that it keeps the uh, Russian army from being able to put them into its ranks. And then the other argument, of course, is humanitarian, let them in so they don't have to kill and die. Now, you'll hear the argument that they should be sent home to start a revolution, but I think that's very much a wishful thinking argument. Uh, what you're seeing again in Russia is people getting arrested for social media posts. Um, you know, expecting these people to start a revolution, uh, that's not what's going to happen. Uh, what I think Europe should be doing, though, is taking into account the very real concerns of small countries like the Baltic countries that would be overwhelmed. But Europe has a lot of experience with refugees and asylum seekers and moving them around so that they can find safe haven in places that can support them. So this isn't rocket science. It's not easy, 
but it's something Europe has experience with. It should treat them the way it treats other people fleeing conflict and process their asylum claims, investigate and give them safe haven because it's the right thing to do and because it degrades the Russian war machine. So the Kremlin appears to have just appointed a new general to command the war effort in Ukraine, so Sergei Sirovikin. He has a very brutal reputation, known to have crushed Russian protesters in the 90s, just after the Soviet Union collapsed around the coup at that time. He has this terrible track record in Syria. How much does that really sort of signal a change in tactics? What really can a new general do when, you know, as, as you talked about, the problems with Russia's war efforts seem so structural? So, look, we don't actually know if he's already been in this job and they just made it official. He is somebody who's known for having overseen the really brutal Russian campaign in Syria. He's also the guy who, in August 1991, when there was the attempted coup, he was actually arrested for this, right, because the coup failed. And what he'd done during the coup was followed orders and... um sent uh, sent his people into a tunnel where there were protesters and three of the protesters demonstrating against the coup. Three of those people were killed. So so then he was arrested when Mikhail Gorbachev was in power, but then freed or pardoned by Yeltsin? Yeah, he was arrested when the coup was defeated. And by December of that year, the charges were dropped uh, and uh, said that he was just following orders. And he, you know, went on to have this illustrious military career. Uh, you know, the other thing that's interesting about him is uh, he's a ground forces guy. He's an army guy, but he, he's been commander of the aerospace forces. Uh, so you know, he was the first combined arms commander, apparently, in the history of the Soviet Union and Russia put together to be in charge of either Russian or Soviet air forces. So that's also kind of an interesting, interesting tidbit. In terms of what this means for Russia's strategy, I don't know, right? I don't know to what extent he personally was responsible for the strategy in Syria. I also don't know what Russia's options are. More missile strikes? I think the one thing that there is a lot of consensus on among the analytical community in and outside of Russia is that mobilization will not work not clear what they're going to do with however many of these men they actually get to the front lines. Not clear how many missiles and rockets they have left to keep firing at Ukraine. They're using air defense weapons as offensive weapons against Ukraine. They're using S-300s. So how many more of these blitzes can they even pull off? They have a ton of artillery, right? They definitely have a whole lot of artillery which is why the Ukrainian approach has been to uh, go after supply lines and uh, go after depots where the artillery is uh, is stored. But I I don't know that it matters who's the commander. It's hard to see what the war logic is going to be other than kind of continued coercive strikes on Ukrainian energy infrastructure, whatever military infrastructure they can hit. And what you think the strikes were aimed at military, energy, communications infrastructure? I mean, there were also a lot of civilian casualties, right? I mean, they struck the center of Kiev. Um, Is their aim that bad? Possibly. This is a conversation I keep having with people. Somebody, Somebody pointed out to me that the Russian aim isn't that bad because occasionally they hit military targets, to which I say that occasionally when I'm in a bar playing darts, I hit the center of that target too, right? Doesn't make, doesn't mean I have good aim. I do not, in fact, have good aim. Any lawyer will tell you that proving war crimes uh, of the sort that are caused by 
uh, missile attacks and, uh, and air attacks is really hard. It's really difficult to prove intention in striking civilian targets. So what I will say is, I don't think the Russians mind hitting the civilian targets, right? If their, if their goal was to flush air defenses, if their goal was to go after energy infrastructure, which they did hit a good bit of, if their goal was to find military infrastructure and they just happened to hit central Kiev, you know, if the, co- if that ends up having coercive effects, that's great. I think their problem is it doesn't end up having coercive effects. It does not frighten the Ukrainians and convince them to back down. It does the opposite. It stiffens their spine, and it also stiffens the spines of Ukraine's supporters. We'll talk some more about some of Ukraine's Western backers in a moment. But beyond the idea that perhaps there's more resistance in Russia to the war than there was some months ago, which, as you say, very hard to prove. But beyond that idea, there is seemingly more hardline or hawkish criticism of the way the war is being conducted. I mean, not criticism targeted at Putin himself, but attacks on the generals that are prosecuting the war, the Minister of Defense... So what you've seen, the ruler of Chechnya, Ramzan Kadyrov, you've seen Yevgeny Progovin, the head of Wagner, a security company close to the Kremlin, very critical about Ukrainian losses. I mean, what should we make of this sort of hardline criticism? So I think there are a number of people who think Russia should have gone even more all in on ultraviolent toxic masculinity uh, as an approach to war, kill more people, uh, frighten them more. But I think they're also frustrated by the fact that Russian capacity is hasn't been what it was touted to be. And there's not much you can do about that. You kind of have the army you have with the capabilities it has. And particularly at this point, when Ukraine has now received all these Western weapons, has been trained up on them, and Russia has lost some of the more competent forces it had, there's just not a lot left to do, again, whoever's in charge. You are seeing finger pointing at the general staff and the MOD, including the folks in charge of including Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister. Uh, that makes sense. These are the people who have presided over these reforms. These are the people who claimed that every exercise was a resounding success. These are the people who told the Russian government and the Russian people that their army was capable and certainly much more capable than it turned out to be resistance to the Kremlin itself, to President Putin, I mean, that that hasn't really been articulated yet. Yeah, that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing seeing people fighting amongst themselves below the level of the presidency. We're seeing people arguing over how the war should be conducted. We're seeing finger-pointing over what got Russia to this point. That is not, at present, a threat to the Putin government. Could it be at some point? Yeah, maybe. I'm not competent to judge. Uh, you know, this really is, it's a gray box, right? It's not a complete black box. It's a gray box because bits and pieces become visible. Things kind of show up through the sides of the box. But it's really hard to know what it means. And I think there's a real tendency to look for evidence of what you want to see. So if you're hoping that there will be a change of government in Russia, you look at these, um, you look at these fights, and you think that's what that means. That is not necessarily what that means. And it may, of course, not be a change of government that leads to anything better for Ukraine or anything better for sort of international peace and security, or indeed for Russia. I mean, it may not go in that direction anyway. I would say the odds are that if there is a change in government in Moscow, however it comes to pass, 
Uh, and I think we've talked about this before, anybody who takes power is going to need to consolidate that power. It's not going to be somebody coming in with um, tons of support from all parts of the government and the population. And historically, when people have tried to consolidate power in Moscow, they have gotten out of wars, and also St. Petersburg. Uh, they've gotten out of wars. So I think you know, uh, if, if there were to be a change in power in Russia, even if it were to uh, very unsavory people, I would be cautiously optimistic and hopeful that it could lead Russia to cut its losses. But, you know, on balance, my money is on Vladimir Putin staying firmly in power. That said, it does seem that in some ways he's being boxed in, partly through his own actions, but perhaps also by some of this pressure. Whereas before, some months ago, he could sort of really dictate at least to some degree, a narrative about the war. Maybe he could have kind of cut his losses by arguing that his security operation had saved people in eastern Ukraine from, you know, what he called the fascist government in Kiev. Maybe he could have portrayed that as a win. But as he then sort of escalates in response to every Ukrainian gain, that becomes harder. So after Kharkiv, you had the mobilisation, the so-called annexation referendums, more nuclear threats. Now after the Kerch Bridge attack, got these heavy airstrikes against Ukrainian cities. Now, this escalation, in some ways, he's sort of destroying his own off-ramp. I think that's exactly right. Um, look, I think there are a couple of things going on. One is just as Russia underestimated Ukrainian will at the start of this conflict and, you know, perhaps throughout this conflict, the West, uh, certainly Ukraine's Western backers and perhaps some folks in Ukraine itself, have consistently underestimated Russia's staying power and Russia's willingness to keep escalating. And so much of Russia's approach depends on this coercive signaling that if you, Ukraine, don't stop fighting, and if you, Ukraine's Western backers, don't uh, stop providing Ukraine with weapons and money, things will keep getting worse for Ukraine and potentially for the rest of you as well. And I think they have realized that these threats aren't seen as credible. So they are kind of the Tom Schelling uh, nuclear deterrence uh, metaphor for this is that, you know, you're in a car, you're approaching the intersection, there's another car coming at you, and you want the other car to swer swerve. So you tear the steering wheel out and throw it out the window to, you know, so you don't have a choice. You can't turn. So the other guy has to turn. You know, this does look like what the Russians are doing. These annexations, uh, which according to their constitution, they can't reverse, uh, all these nuclear threats. The point of this is to signal to the rest of the world that Russia won't back down. So, you know, it's on Ukraine and it's on its Western backers to swerve. And so in light of that, then let's come to the nuclear risks. So Putin's nuclear menacing, as people who've listened to this podcast before will know, has been there right from the beginning. I mean, back in February, he warned he would use all means to stop anyone who helped Ukraine, a sort of barely concealed nuclear threat. But he's now cranked up those warnings, as we heard up top, even explicitly saying this is not a bluff. And now there's this sort of question hanging over the war, you know, how will he respond if Ukraine, you know, notwithstanding all the difficulties you talked about, if Ukraine does continue gaining ground, then I realise that that is what the Kremlin itself, that is what President Putin wants people to worry about. You know, that's part of the nuclear brinksmanship. But it is still a big sort of looming question. Now, are we potentially caught in an escalatory cycle that's very difficult to get out of? 
So what Moscow wants you to think is that there is a very substantial risk that it will use a nuclear weapon under those conditions. Uh, where it will use it, how it will use it, unclear. But that is what it wants you to think, because it wants you to think this, it wants people in Brussels to think this, it wants people in Washington to think this, it wants people in Kiev to think this, and as a result, it wants them to sue for peace on Russia's terms. The question is, is that true? Is that really what Moscow will do? And the answer is, maybe. We don't know. Again, it's committing suicide for fear of death, right? It's threatening something horrific that the threatener is himself, in this case it's a he, is terrified of. But the point is that Russia has the resolve that this is existential for Russia, more so than it is for everybody else. And, you know, when this phase of the war began, uh, the, you know, kind of the phase of the last seven and a half months when Russia launched its full-fledged invasion of Ukraine, a lot of the discussion in Western countries, certainly, it assumed a Russian victory, uh, because it assumed the Russian military was as capable as the Russian said it was. And, you know, kind of the argument was that the Russians see Ukraine as near existential. Ukraine is certainly existential for the Ukrainians. But from a Western perspective, Ukraine is not existential. Uh, Western countries have lived with a Ukraine controlled by Russia for years. Uh, you know, most of the last couple of hundred years of history, at least parts of Ukraine, were controlled by Russia. So, and this wasn't existential for anybody else. But the way Russia has prosecuted this war, the annexations, uh, the nuclear threats, have made this war existential for other European countries. You know, if you're sitting in Poland and Russia is announcing that it has annexed territory that it doesn't even hold and it's now going to threaten nuclear use if anybody fights for it, you think, wow, there's nothing stopping Moscow from doing this to Poland, right? And if the threat is nuclear use and you bow down to it, they are, you know, why wouldn't they do it again? So Russia has made this existential for Europe. And because the United States has security commitments to big chunks of Europe, it's made it existential uh, in that sense uh, to the United States because its allies are at risk. So the nuclear threats have stiffened resolve in Western capitals, had precisely sort of the opposite impact that the Kremlin hoped for. Exactly. So Russia has narrowed the resolve gap, but not in its favor, uh, right? The resolve gap was in Russia's favor, that there was a recognition that Russia cared more. So eh, maybe we can live with it. It won't be good. We'll have, you know, we'll have to think about how to manage the military balance, etc. to Russia cannot win this war. And, you know, this is, it's a dangerous, it's a really dangerous time. The possibility of nuclear war, it cannot be excluded because Russia has decided that its control of Ukraine is existential for Russia, though arguably it's not, you know, it certainly needn't have been. And for Western countries, a Russia that is able to succeed by using the cover of its nuclear weapons to invade and conquer a neighboring country in Europe, that has made this war existential uh, again. So here we are. And to remind people, I mean, Western leaders have made clear that Russia's use of nuclear weapons would prompt a massive Western response. Exactly what it would tell isn't clear, but it would be precisely the response that Putin so far has been trying to avoid, a response that could potentially jeopardize his own grip on power. And that's not even sort of getting into the 
practical questions. I mean, could he conduct a nuclear strike without radiation spilling into Russian-held areas, Russia itself potentially into Belarus, a Russian ally? Uh, yes, but, you know, it's so counterproductive on so many levels that they're going to have to discount all of them in order to do it. Look, I don't think they want to use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. They want the coercion to work. And I think they want, I have no idea what the logic of the mobilization is, but presumably they've started it, so they want to give it some time to work. Um, I would think they would want to give winter some time to work. Uh, there's a pretty strong conviction in Russia that European countries will not uh, maintain their stiff spines in the face of having to put on an extra sweater. Uh, Ukraine's going to have a really hard time this winter. A lot of Ukrainian houses are not terribly energy efficient, and it's going to have fuel shortages. So it's plausible that Russia is hoping that winter is on its side. The Ukrainians will tell you that from a military standpoint, winter is on their side. They're going to get their act together and get the military uniforms, the winter uniforms and the sleeping bags to people more effectively than the Russians are, et cetera, et cetera. And in fairness, Ukrainians have several times gone out into the streets to protest in the middle of winter and lived in tents while they were doing it. But I do think that Moscow, look, up until now, Russia has been trying to win this war militarily, trying to win this war coercively, and avoid direct combat, direct conflict with NATO states. They have not attacked NATO member states. NATO members have also tried to avoid direct conflict with Russia. All of their support has been to Ukraine. They have not sent their own people into Ukraine, you know, except on government visits and things, but they're not training on Ukrainian territory. They're certainly not fighting Russia. And the reason for this is because nobody wants a nuclear war. This continues to be true. The problem emerges when it stops being true. And yeah, if Russia uses a nuclear weapon, the response will probably be a West, it almost certainly won't be nuclear from Western countries. It will probably be a reminder to Russia that Western conventional capacity is pretty substantial and can do Russia an awful lot of harm without the West having to resort to nuclear weapons. So the effort will be able to deter Russia from continuing on this path to risk a nuclear conflagration. But each step along the way is, of course, more dangerous. It's really hard to signal effectively uh, in the middle of a war by using military means, right? A lot of what ends up happening is you launch your strike and you think that uh, the way you have done it shows restraint and your adversary will understand. And your adversary looks at it and says, wow, that's an escalation. So they escalate back, but in a way that they think shows restraint. But, you know, again, the first party does not look at it as restraint and sees it as an escalation. And this is how you go down that escalation spiral. Just, I mean, if you wind back to before February this year, there was a sort of sense that you talked about that the Russian military was more capable. I don't think anyone thought it was a match for sort of the combined forces of NATO by any stretch. But there was a sense that the Russian military was reasonably efficient, that it had achieved its goals, you know, whatever you think of those goals. It had achieved its goals in Syria. And, you know, I can imagine from a Russian perspective, looking at the US pullout from Afghanistan, looking at what the US had achieved in Iraq, notwithstanding that, of course, it's much easier to prop up a government than topple one and build something in its place. But looking at them, you could imagine a Russian commentator making the case that the Russian military had been more effective in Syria than the US had been elsewhere. Now, wind on, you know, to eight months of 
you know, in essence, a, a grinding battle with the momentum against Russia in Ukraine. I mean, the weakness of the Russian military has been really exposed by the war. And the disparity of conventional Russian military force, the disparity between that and the collective might of NATO, I mean, how much does that resonate in Moscow? So I think in Russia, you look at this and you don't think of yourself as being defeated by Ukraine. You think of this as being defeated by a Ukraine armed with NATO weapons. And there's also tons of propaganda that says that there are NATO forces fighting in Ukraine, but the Russian government does not really think there are but that Ukraine has been equipped with Western weapons on the one hand. On the other hand, it is very clear that there has been a lot of rot, that their forces are not as capable as expected. And somebody it's this is somebody's fault, right? There have been years and years of exercises, of touting weapons platforms. And I think also, yes, successes in Syria and in Ukraine in 2014 and 2015, when regular Russian army forces went in, they changed the tide each time. So what you conclude from that is that Russia did well when it had limited goals and it sent limited forces in to attain those goals. And it had sufficient competence in specific units and specific capabilities that it could do things. What it could not do in February was go in and, with less than 200,000 troops, topple the Ukrainian government and occupy Ukraine. Well, okay, that's a pretty high bar. Uh, what it did in trying was get a lot of its actual capable forces uh, drastically weakened, if not destroyed. And at this point, Russia does not have an awful lot of people uh, who are available to fight. Uh, and clearly, it had fewer than it thought from the beginning. And we saw that early on, because it was moving troops from all over the country uh, for the Ukraine war. So I think there's a recognition of gaps, but it's still hard to judge what first armed forces can and can't do, right? They're still fighting in the South, and it's a hard fight for the Ukrainians. They've The Ukrainians have been able to take some territory, but they're not ruling over the Russian forces there. So I think the bottom line is that, yes, there's obviously a reckoning going on in Russia in how this went wrong and how they how they oversold the Russian armed forces. Uh, it's a big mystery. What's going on with the Air Force? Are they keeping the Air Force back uh, for the eventual war with NATO? Uh, are all the good Air Force assets in, you know, in the North? But if so, why wouldn't you bring them in when you actually start losing in Ukraine? We don't know what kind of shape the Navy's in. The only naval forces that have really been engaged here have been the Black Sea Fleet, which was never Russia's strongest fleet. Nobody else can get in because Turkey's not letting them in. So... You know, how capable is the Russian Navy? So there's been this this metronome effect, right, of the Russian military capable, the Russian military useless, the Russian military capable, the Russian military useless. Um, the answer is that some of the Russian military is probably still capable, but an awful lot of it is much less capable than the Russians thought it was. And that forces a reckoning for them and for everybody else. Maybe to end then, I mean, we've touched on some of this. I know it's very, very hard to say, but what should we expect from the next few months? What are some of the different ways that it could go and what should we be watching for? I expect more missile strikes on uh, Ukrainian cities, Ukrainian energy infrastructure, Ukrainian military infrastructure. I expect continued positional fighting in the northeast and in the south. I expect more saber rattling and more threats. 
And then kind of I'm torn on, I think it could go a lot of ways on whether the Russians really try to push things before the winter or if they give uh, winter a chance to do its thing. And then moving forward, I think the prospect of continued positional fighting and stalemate for some time to come, it's still on the table. I do think Russia's economic staying power and its capacity to keep getting people into the fight is going to be an issue. It's got the artillery. I don't know what else it's got. And when you say people, I mean, this is cannon fodder, though, right? I mean, this is not capable units. This is poorly trained, mostly men, because, interestingly, the Russian military has become less female over time, um, as other militaries have become more female. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, what we've seen is that... Um, the Russians aren't evacuating wounded uh, very much as things are. So uh, they are taking very heavy casualties. I mean, we don't know the exact numbers. The Russians offer numbers that are tremendous undercount. But they're losing a lot of people, not just because, you know, they're poorly equipped and poorly trained, but also because they're not using air to evacuate wounded. They're leaving people in trenches to die. I don't see how that changes, and putting people who are even less well-trained and even less well-equipped on the front lines, it all but guarantees more dead Russian men. You know, I, again, I, I, I lack the creativity to explain the logic of this mobilization. Olya, thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you for having me. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Ukraine on everywhere else we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks very much to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And of course, as usual, thanks again to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org. Or as ever, write to me directly, atwood at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions or suggestions, if you like the show, Please do say something nice about us. Give us a positive rating. And I very much hope that you'll join us again next week. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.